The brothers wish. The brothers wish, brothers wish. The brothers wish. The brothers. You're now listening to Greg. Hey everybody, this is Greg with the Brothers Wisp number 152. I am coming at you from the motherland, College Station, Texas. I mean, I guess most of Central Texas is the motherland. I mean, don't go to West Texas. That place is, I mean, it may as well not even exist. That's just like a wasteland. That's what I assume um, our dystopian future will look like is West Texas. So just avoid that whenever possible. But we have multiple lovely faces with us today. I'm going to start in the square just below me because I know if I point that direction, I'll be pointing correctly. And we have John Osmond. Greetings. Where are you coming from? Aren't you like New Mexico or? I am in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And when you were talking about West Texas, I was thinking that there's a whole bunch of people in Eastern New Mexico that kind of wish they were West Texas. <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right well i've never heard anybody be envious of folks in west texas so that's a new one for me good deal all right now i'm gonna go to my left because i know to, to point that direction we have uh nick arellano hey everybody where are you where where are you from again ills noises I'm from Illinois. Right, I'm perfect, an Illinoisian. I should have uh, just shown it to uh, to Greg and had him try and uh, figure out how to pronounce the word. But uh, having <laughs> said that, let's go diagonally. We have Greg Lipschitz. Where are you from, bud? G'day. Uh, from Melbourne, Australia. Although my background is showing I'm in the outback of Australia at the moment. It's a balmy 85 here today for those who are in Fahrenheit. And for the rest of the world, it's uh, about 29 that's right. You guys are enjoying your uh, your summer, and we are. I don't know. I mean, it's still it's still pretty warm here. So I don't know. I guess I assume we're going to have a summer. We're coming up right on um, snowpocalypse territory, so it should just get disgusting uh, anytime soon. I'm expecting in the next months or so. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold on there. Yeah, Melbourne. That's like where all the hippies are in Australia, right? Oh, there's well, there's there's parts of Melbourne which are certainly hippie esque. I tell you, <laughs> I'm I'm certainly not of the. Uh... Uh, the hippie variety, but uh, Brunswick is probably our hippie capital within uh, in Melbourne, and then you go up the east coast of Australia to a place called Byron Bay, which is uh, south of the Gold Coast huh. and uh, north of Sydney, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the the uh, bong toting capital of uh, of Australia. <laughs> bong toting capital. Uh, yeah, I, Byron Bay. I uh, I visited uh, Gold Coast for like a day or two. It was uh, it was nice down there. Yeah, Gold Coast is beautiful. It's uh, the city of city of beaches, really. It's just um, it's a it's a beautiful place to go and visit. Yeah. And it's where all the people in Melbourne, once they get sick of the cold, they uh, they piss off to the Gold Coast. They <laughs> they, <laughs> they pack up and they move to the warmth. It was funny. Uh, I had my worst service experience there. We went at a restaurant, and it took them like ten minutes just to acknowledge we existed, and then probably another like twenty minutes to take our order, and then our food eventually showed up. Like man, you guys. Oh, I'm just... glad. I'm glad they got the memo that you were coming from. That's good. <laughs> I mean, they set the bar uh, really low, so everything else was pretty good compared to that. I don't know, man. They were just on a different like like they were like yeah, they were definitely retired. I guess they were on a different uh, schedule. I loved it. Yeah, well, when I don't, I think you guys call them flip flops. We call them thongs here. Yeah. But uh, you know, when when thongs is a standard dress attire, then you you know you the bar's not that high. <laughs> Or uh, pluggers, don't you guys call them that as well? Pluggers, yeah, we call them pluggers. I saw a video of some guy, like, there's apparently like a thief or something like that, and he was chasing him, and like his 
He's like, I blew out my plugger on my way. And yeah, he was like, blew, blew a plug. Yeah, yeah, that's what he was most <laughs> upset about. Not that the guy was like robbing somebody or whatever, but that he like ruined his nice flip flop. So, well, there's all sorts of uh, you know home hacks on how to fix your fix your pluggers. You know, using the bre- <laughs> using bread clips and things like that to to hold your plug in and you know get an extra you know few hundred miles out of your pluggers and, and things <laughs> few like that. Hundred so miles. Also, wow. A few hundred miles. You know, a few hundred miles. We we work in kilometers here, like the rest of the world. <laughs> whatever. Whatever. We work in freedom <laughs> units. Shots fired. Freedom isn't free, hey? That's right. It's measured in inches and Fahrenheit. So let's do the uh let's do the uh the necessary. Let's get the uh things out of the way. We have a couple of new patrons this go around. And that's kind folks that went to patreon.com forward slash brotherswiss, signed up, and that would be Anthony Carter and Brad Butler. I wanna say Brad was our Missouri guy or misery. Came from uh came from there. I'm not sure. Uh I can't remember where Anthony came from. Uh, it escapes me. But I think, to be honest, I think Tommy, I think uh, Tommy Krogan sent them both uh, our way. So that was pretty cool. And so those guys became Slack members. So they're in there, they're doing their thing, they're singing and dancing. I think they've already been active, which is awesome. Already asking questions, already helping out where they possibly can. And we also have some sponsors this go around. I'm sure you've never heard of these people, but there's a company called Sonar, Sonar.software. It's a scalable, intuitive, comprehensive ISP operational support system. You can learn more if you just pop over to Sonar.software. You can actually put that in your browser and it bleeps you to a website. We also have Tower Coverage. Tower Coverage is your RF propagation system to empower... You know what? Hang on. Let's have the other Greg. Let's have the good Greg read that one. You see the blurb (laughs) down there. You've got the good kit. You've got the good mic. Yeah, tower coverage is your RF propagation system to empower your network, (laughs) real-time data metrics to enable coverage area, reaching your customer base and more. The industry's best RF propagation mapping system allows website integration for customer sign-up and pre-qualification. Use this data to scientifically plan your expansion and help your WISP succeed. Get your free trial today at towercoverage.com. Oh man! So we have me in an Australian accent, like you know, like that's the you don't get that every day of the week because usually you guys plan these things at like four in the morning, and then <laughs> then I've got to roll out of bed and you just get me mumbling. Uh, so we have me. I'm just Greg, and then we'll have the good Greg. That'll be you. So whenever we need some good voiceover work, we'll get the good Greg, the one with hair and the one without. <laughs> I am. Dude, I've got a fur suit on all the time. I could be like uh, a professional sports mascot. Just roll out there. I'm ready. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it just all migrated south. You know how it is. Snowbird. Uh, so let's uh, let's get into some of the things. Um, the first thing, it's more or less just kind of a, a notice to you folks out there. Uh, because I actually do kind of like the Windows built-in client. Uh, you know, you got your PPTP, you got your uh, L2TP, you know, kind of the built-in VPN stuff. Apparently, there's a new Windows update that was kind enough to break those. So I'm not sure uh, when that's going to get sussed out, like when they will fix that. But I know you can roll back the uh, security update that does that. But it also undoes a lot of other fixes that you probably need in there for security purposes. Right. So you're going to have to weigh your options on that. So one. on um, on Windows 10, there was two two patches that they uh announced and on windows 11 for those who are game enough to be running that there was one security patch which had to be rolled back um there was some stuff around the built-in drivers i think that a lot of people have reported as well if you're running the uh windows update provider drivers rather than vendor provider drivers 
a lot of people have uh, reported you have to go and reinstall them as well and roll back drivers and the like so have you guys gotten bit by that i think we saw two two support tickets in the last week on that one it's not too bad that's not too terrible i haven't heard anything yet i know i personally use it but you know we're having another wave of COVID here so i'm just kind of chilling at the house so it's pretty useless for me right now anyway if you don't patch there's no problem right yeah yeah (laughs) is it like saying i'm not sick if i don't go to the doctor that's true (laughs) absolutely okay don't you guys just reinstall windows every three four months anyway just to make things better (laughs) once a year funnily enough i have not been on a windows computer for at least 10 years i i think nick nailed it i used to i used to reinstall at least once a year it was about once a year kind of on the dot but man like uh since i've been on windows 10 i just i haven't like i've been rocking rocking the same install the entire time i haven't they're finally actually getting fairly stable and usable i am uh, it, pretty pleased it has worked well yeah i cannot complain uh not that i used to complain before because it, i always thought it was better than the alternatives but it's i don't know it's just it's really user friendly these days i'm sure there are a lot of people that disagree with that but whatever i don't care so that's uh that's enough for the public service announcement we have a couple of cambium things in here and the good greg was kind enough to put them in there so tell us about them yeah so cambium have uh, announced that they're releasing a qoe quality of experience product which is for those who are probably across uh, qoe products you've got uh, the likes of preseam who are currently doing a QOE product. And uh, it's early days for Cambium. They only announced it in the last uh, 90 days and starting to get uh, partners out there to to start testing the QOE software. They were talking originally about bottom-of-tower-based deployment and uh, now they've sort of said, oh, we're now doing uh, centralised DC deployment as well. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what comes of that. Um, Software ISO for those who want to roll it on their own tin or a, applic- a full appliance for those who want to run it in the pre like way. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see what comes of that in the next uh, quarter, and uh, hopefully we'll have something to report. Talking to the guys here in Australia, and uh, we'll see what comes of it. That's interesting. This is the first I've been hearing about it. And you said base of tower is what they were sort of yeah, launching. So, That's interesting. Yeah, so they... they we're talking in their original webinar about base of tower deployment. And now I, I can see that that would make sense if you're running a layer three sort of uh, internet service and then doing um, your breakout at your tower level. But uh, certainly for those who are running broader, broader layer two networks and uh, aggregating and centralizing things in the data center, it, it certainly doesn't make sense doing it that way. So um, I think they're going to take a lot of feedback on board from my first question was, did you buy someone and, um, Sticking sticking a Cambium sticker on the front of it, or did you build it from scratch? And I'm I'm assured that it is, it is built from uh, in, internal Cambium. So, very early days. I'm I'm yet to lay my eyes on it. There's a few people who have got some articles out there already hmm. in the US who have tested it, but yeah, very early days. Interesting. So, um, I mean, generally with like the quality of experience stuff, you just need it. At least I thought you just needed it at least between your network and your upstreams, right? Like it, it needs to traverse that before it gets to the internet or whatever. So would you, I mean, are they hmm, tower, tower install? Cause it's like, that just seems odd to me. Cause I know, I mean, Nick, how many towers do you guys have that you're servicing customers off of? I was probably like 55 or 60 at this point. Yeah. 
How about you, Greg? I mean, you guys are still doing a lot of wireless stuff, right? Yeah, we're doing lots of wireless. It's our it's our primary product here, wireless and voice. And we're about fifty six, I think, towers now here in in Metro Melbourne. Okay. Um, but yeah, rolling something like that at each tower just would not be. Um, <laughs> well, I I just you know. I think too. It's like, well, say I've got fifty towers. Not only do I have the burden of putting those out there, but then I also have to make sure that they stay up power wise. And then I've got one more piece of equipment out there that can fail. That obviously all my traffic exactly. has to move through. It's, I think I would rather just put these at my my head ends, you know, where they're a little bit more hard and probably in a data center like you mentioned. So that makes more sense to me. Yeah, well, we run pure DC at all of our. Um, transmission sites so we you know we wouldn't be powering a 240 volt ac product here at our tower sites it, it would just be unreasonable to to think that a lot of people would do that and even in the telco bigger telco space most people are neg 48 volt dc so unless they're releasing a really really power effect efficient device that can sit at a tower i i can't see how that's going to really work unless people are doing um internet tails to each tower layer three internet tails doing CG NAT at the tower and in which case something like that at the tower may make sense but I think for the bigger part of the WISP space people are you know layer two hauling everything back routing across their networks mm -hmm. and then having a centralized breakout with multiple upstreams okay well makes sense to me watch this space oh well for sure all right, well, tell me about the uh, Cambium TX1K. Yeah, so the other exciting news is Cambium's uh, finally releasing a uh, TX1K. So the TX2K, this is their CN Matrix product, their enterprise switching product. They've taken some feedback on board around the WISP space, and they're finally releasing a smaller WISP switch, which is really, really good. It's going to be called the TX1K um, series. They're going to be both AC and DC which is really good. Um, the DC version, which is particularly the one that we're testing here at the moment, uh, input voltage of 9 to 60 volts, um, 4 layer, 2 layer, 3, running the Cambium uh, interface on it. We've, we've certainly got some really good uh, conversations going with the Cambium engineers at the moment. We've had a few changes implemented around, around the interface and around import and export of configs and stuff like that. So they're being really uh, amenable to the changes that we're putting forward in terms of ports this is um they've taken that on board as well eight copper ports and four sfp plus ports hmm. so oh, nice. so yeah so really really nice there in terms of um power um total power budget on the smaller model is uh 200 watts um total power and a power budget on your poe out of 150 watts so really targeted to tackle the netonics um probably the 12 250 dc which I would suspect is that, that sort of spot where a lot of people will be looking to replace them. Um, our only major issue at the moment has been a couple of little software things, which, again, the guys are working on, but the, the depth of the unit is, was the killer for us. It's going to mean that we have to um, re-engineer some of our the design of our cabinets for our transmission sites. But other than that, the, the unit's been running in our lab. We've done some software and firmware upgrades on them. We found a couple of little bugs that fixed the bugs overall. Shows up in CN Maestro, uh, quite manageable, um, Cisco-like in the command line. Overall, so far, so good. Hmm. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Like, uh, what is the CL like? Is it menu-driven? But you said it's like Cisco-like or uh, industry standard. 
That's that's what I've, industry I, standard. I've heard vendors because they don't want to mention Cisco, so they say industry standard CLI. Yeah, all right, cool. Sure, we'll we'll fix that in post. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, look, overall, like the the, the UI is a bit, um, uh, I think three com, uh, ten base T nineteen nineties, but you know the, the the functionality is there. Um, we had little things like the way that they called. Um, they called LACP three different things in three different screens. It was just about ether con- channel. Yeah, they called it ether channel. They <laughs> called it LACP. They called it LA hmm. on one screen. They called it port channel on another screen. Right. And it was like, guys, just get get consistency across the way that you call things and the way that things function. Um, little things like the LED doesn't come on on the front when it's in a certain state. If you've got a certain port in a certain way and you're holding the tongue your tongue against the left side of your mouth while your switch is you know th- those sorts of weird things which are just software things yeah. but as i overall um really really good the um the ac version as well so it's single psu on the um on the tx1k uh, ac version as well very similar 260 total um power budget and 180 watts on your poe output that's in the same form factor in terms of uh, eight and four eight copper ports and four sfp plus on the the poe is it um is it standards based or passive or what uh passive passive poe so they've they've gone for the um uh what are they saying here i'm just reading the spec sheet uh 802.3 afat okay um and they can do poe 24 volts or 48 volts um they've got 424 and 848 um and you can run 48 volts high power, 90 watts, two port on two ports. So if if, you, if you're running some some higher power backhauls, whether it's something like a Ciclu, um, you'll be able to power it via the uh, port and then still run fiber down to your 10 gig port as well. Mm. So so a lot of the a lot of the bigger radios are running whether it's an NEC or a Ciclu or a Raycom or any of those bigger, more commercial radios will either have you run DC um, up the tower for power, or you can power via management port via poe and then run fiber back down for your data data plane oh very nice so in here you're saying you're not necessarily saying a netonics killer but uh maybe something akin to that is like um i remember the last network i was playing with extensively that had netonics in there i was running into stp issues you know spanning tree like non-stop did they i'm assuming they have a better implementation than netonics does well we um we don't run spanning tree within our um, our tower sites because uh, we break up our, our broadcast domain so that we don't have those sorts of problems. But I'm sure if anyone's running a big stretched layer two um, network, then you're probably facing STP problems all the time anyway. So just route your network and get rid of those sorts of problems. And guess what? They won't exist anymore. <laughs> and that's exactly what we were doing. We were we were moving them from bridge to to route it but in the interim right it's like it kept having stp problems it was going bonkers and you said this guy actually does routing is it going to do line rate yeah so they're saying full layer two layer three line rates um layer three I, I certainly just looking at what's inside it i certainly wouldn't look at doing that um but hey we'll we'll see what um comes out in the next couple of software releases uh interestingly they do have also the TX2K, which is already out, uh, again, targeted more at the higher model Cambium products where you can have either dual AC or dual DC or AC and a DC power supply in the single unit. 
um, look really nice. They've got the timing clock and everything now built into the switches as well, which is great if you're running uh, Medusa, the 450M product, and they do need the, the timing pulse. So you can run that straight off the switches now, which really saves just on, on rack space and things like that and, and having to get separate timing units. But yeah, overall, the, they seem, seem to be listening to what the Wisps market is saying and, and putting a switch out there that is somewhat useful now rather than just a um, having to go to the Netronix product or um, I know a lot of guys are using the Planet switches as well, the, the Dinrail Planet switches, just depending on the equipment that you're running. Hmm. So if you actually like these things, they, they work in your test environments and all that good stuff, do you see yourself forklifting Netronix for this or do you just see like maybe moving forward, you know, like new installs? We, we yeah, we'll probably just use it for new installs going forward. We we are a Cambium shop internally, so um, we are 100% Cambium from from our AP and subscriber module uh, access network. So yeah, we we will certainly look at rolling the Cambium product. And it, I think at the moment the biggest thing comes down to availability of product. Uh, Netonics has got a worldwide shortage on product at the moment, mm. which is certainly causing us grief here in Australia. We've got a warehouse full of stock, purely for the fact that. We know that it's going to bite us in the ass eventually. So we just buy stock and leave it on the shelf and just hope that we don't have um, too many faults because we know that the RMAs aren't going to get processed in a timely manner mm. and eventually eventually we'll run out of stock. So, yeah, certainly looking at alternate products has been high on our list to make sure that we've got something in the event that it all turns to custard. And... Um, yeah, look, Cambium's been really good to us as a company. We, we're on a lot of their beta programs. We're on a lot of their sort of feedback loops. Um, and, and they take on board a lot of what we say. So it's, it's good to see that uh, the product is really evolving and they're listening to the, the WISP market in the access arena and not just focusing on the, the higher and backhaul networks as well and their uh, 850 products and, and the likes. Hmm, that's cool. What say you, Nick? I know this is kind of the the area you play in a little bit as well, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, we've we've got hundreds of Netonic switches. Uh, they also have very occasionally I get weird issues I can't I can't replicate. Like if you use LACP on the fiber, um, sometimes weird things happen where a broadcast storm starts, and it's really hard to tell what it comes from. And it's very very rare, but it's enough that. It crashes the switch and restarts. Um, just little tiny weird quirks like that, but we use them super extensively. And unfortunately, because of the uh, competition in that space is pretty much none. Mm. They don't really innovate that much. Um, sometimes it's pretty buggy, but there's you know having more competition is good. I mean, obviously, integration with CN Maestro is kind of a big deal for Cambium only shops. Um, so I'm I'm curious to see what these are like. Uh, another thing for Netonix for us is that um, they bond the negative to the chassis. So unfortunately, with some of our plants or most of our boxes, it's all DC powered. So all it takes is you touching a positive lead to the enclosure or something, and you pop fuses. They only have one model of an isolated uh, DC switch, and it's like the 20 I think 24 port one. So I'm curious to see if Cambium has they do. an isolated. They do. Their, their circuitry oh. is is um, <laughs> what you would expect of a of an enterprise switch. Um, it is it is chalk and cheese in, in that respect. So if it's good, I mean, I would definitely 
probably switch everything out Netonics wise. Um, it, especially with the 10 gig ports. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And hopefully it can, uh, <clears throat> I guess the real test is whether it can survive your summer over there and not shut down, right? Yeah, well, we've certainly got some pretty hot sites. Uh, I posted a uh, in the Slack a few weeks ago about one of our sites between Christmas and New Year, which popped up an alert um, saying it shut down due to overheating after 497 days or something of uptime due to, you know, it reached 98 degrees on a CCR1009 passive cooled. And um, we're actually going around to a lot of our sites this week. I saw the guys in the warehouse this week were actively going and measuring uh, insides of cabinets to put some insulated um, styrofoam on the insides of some of our cabinets just to give some more reflective uh, heat, um, save, save the equipment, give it a few more years. But we've got Netonic switches sitting in direct sunlight on the top of a tower and have been running for years and years and years, and the heat does not seem to kill them. It's, uh, as Nick said, it's the it's the weird POE bugs that kill them. <laughs> it's um, weird grounding issues where you get um, yeah, not yeah or you either get you you get um, some some sort of eddy current on on a line and it just goes and just blows its head up and turns caps into mushrooms. <laughs> that's that's really what it comes down to and. The, the replaceability on the boards, just the availability of parts. They're using really weird and wonderful parts. We've even tried to source them out of China. And you look at the boards and you're like, yeah, you know, if you've, if you've got experience with working with surface mount and you've got experience with replacing caps and you've got access to a crow to be able to, to test your stuff, like it's, it's, it is all replaceable except for the parts that they use and not standard parts. So you go to Mr. China and they say, oh, we, we would have to go and source it for you and you'd need to buy, you know, 10,000 pieces. And <laughs> and I don't need 10,000 pieces when I might only have two boards that need um, need replacement. The the one thing that we did get out of Netonics recently was they are actually doing board replacements now. So if you send your um, distributor the serial number of and the MAC address, I think it is, of the, of the board, they'll actually send you a replacement board back um, with that same serial number so you can turf the other one and, and just drop the board back in so we've had a couple of them here from uh, our distributor streakwave here in australia and uh, yeah that's that's been okay it's about maybe two-thirds of the cost of a new switch but when the chassis is good and everything else is good and you know we're trying to do the right thing by the environment but not not being too wasteful it's uh it's certainly worthwhile just swapping mm. a board out that's interesting so it's you think their shortage just really comes down to them using non-standard parts right? instead of just grabbing stuff off the shelf, huh? Well, reading reading on the forums, um, Chris, their their owner has has pretty much thrown his hands up and said it's it's all stock shortage, it's all parts, and we're not going to be shipping anything until September. I think was the was the time frame that he that he put on it recently, um, which you know, as Nick said, if, if you've got hundreds of switches out there you've either got to self-spare and have a lot of spares on the shelf mm. or be looking at alternatives. Um, you can't get caught with your pants down when either a lightning storm rolls through and takes out towers or you have a tech who accidentally kills it. Um, and even just losing one or two ports, a lot of the time if you're using a 12-port switch and you lose one or two ports, okay, you can shuffle things around. But when you lose both of your high-powered ports, which is both of your backhauls, well, then you're shit out of luck and then you've got to go and replace the switch. So... I think that there's real opportunity for Cambium to shine here and to 
charge charge a premium for the product if they can show to the WISP market that it's a good product, we've designed it well, the engineering's there, we've put some real thought into it, we're going to give you the Cambium level of support versus the forum-only-based support, which is the likes of Netonics and, and really Microtik that are offering. It's it's not going to be that community support model. It is going to be that enterprise support model. So you might pay an extra 20 to 50% premium on the product, but if it means that you're getting the support, well, mm. it's not Cisco TAC pricing or those sorts of things, but if you're getting really good support, I think they were saying five-year warranty um from memory don't quote me on that one but i think it was a five-year warranty yeah it is here i'm just looking at the the document so yeah five-year um cambium support and warranty which again you just you're not going to get that on a lot of the the, the netonics product is what i would consider a 30-foot <laughs> warranty once it leaves the factory so if you have own. to convince the the guy that you grant properly <laughs> have have debates uh absolutely they need competition because like you, even even like software support, if you look at like the backup manager, it's atrocious. Um, it's like you can basically look at the source code. They just don't have a lot of support. Even the the firmware and the software that runs on the switch is a little sketchy. Like you could totally do some weird stuff with the switch. You could um, basically unpack the firmware, and it's like the whole web server is packed in there, so you can edit it and do all kinds of weird stuff if you want to, um, which is kind of cool. But having someone like Cambium or you know, hopefully somebody like Microtik that has a more formalized way to interact and automate that stuff that's not super hacky that could break between firmware releases. They just need competition. We use them extensively, even to the point that um, the uh, the smaller 12-port switch has uh, four high-voltage ports. And so all of our sites, it's, it's either two or four of those, and we have like a shelf to put them side by side. And so for a lot of the air fibers and stuff, we take them into the... Um, ubiquity fiber poe and convert it to dc or uh or for some of our backhauls so we use them pretty extensively for backhauls that we don't need like a dc to dc converter so they're, they're pretty versatile but um there's obviously quality control issues software issues so it would be nice to have uh even if it's more expensive more robust solid switch to just not have to worry about that stuff anymore so yeah, I certainly don't mind paying a little bit more to sleep well at night. That's that's mm. a big thing that you know we've touched on previously when I was last on was about sleeping well at night and designing things well and and having robust equipment. Um, if if we can pay a little bit more and it just um, we know that we've got that support, we've got the, the the vendor behind us. And Cambium from a from a warranty point of view has certainly got a lot better. They've taken on a lot of feedback around their warranty process, certainly around the smaller. Um, products as long as people don't uh, abuse it which we've heard that that's happened then yeah, definitely it's not be peace a of mind is, is big for me so there's been like enterprise environments or data center scenarios where I could have used Microtik switches or I could have used XYZ vendor but as much as people hate them I would throw a piece of Cisco kit in there and once you get it configured and it works I forget about it and it just continues to pass packets you don't have to think about that and you know, it's like whenever I have an SLA mm. associated with, you know, a connection I'm selling to somebody, that goes a long way because, um, you know, I had 99 problems and whatever this piece of equipment is in here, I didn't want it to be one of them. So I was always trying to like just quiet the demons, you know, I guess extinguish the fire before it ever actually starts. So, yeah, but 
that's not necessarily the scenario we're talking about here, like with these things. And uh, if, you know, and, and I mean, I guess that's more what people think about with Cambium, right? Is the level of support and the level of consistency with the product, right? So that's what you're going for in the, the wireless market. I guess they're the, they're the closest thing of balance of like price, performance, support of like all of them, right? Oh, absolutely. And coming out of the original Motorola days, you know, you look at Motorola, especially in the two-way space, and you pretty much look mm. at any police department around the world, you, you know, what is their two-way systems? Most of them are running a two-way P25-based two-way system on Motorola or Tate, you know, two big, robust two-way companies. But Motorola's got some solid engineering behind them, and that's really, I guess, Sean in the spin-off of Cambium is that their engineering has been really good and they've got really smart people internally who are happy to listen to the feedback once it gets out in the field and, um, yeah, for get sure, some man. good product out there. All right. You guys have any other thoughts on that? No. Silence is acceptance. All right. Well, here's one that, uh, was just more thought provoking for me when I read this, uh, this little article. I'm not sure if you guys have read it yet or not. Um, but I found it quite interesting. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't exactly know what the right answer is here one way or the other, but there was this developer who put out two like extremely popular, uh, JavaScript library, uh, libraries. And just recently he purposely sabotaged them. So just to give you an idea of like how big these are, he has one that's called figure.js and colors.js. Uh, it's a guy named Marek Squires. And I think, was it Faker gets about 2.8 million weekly downloads. That's a week supported by 2,500 plus projects. And then the colors.js has downloaded 20 million per week. I mean, 19,000 projects. That is, I mean, that is a substantial user base. Uh, anyway, about a year ago, he made a, like a post in his forum saying basically he was going to stop supporting this stuff. Uh, he said, I'm no longer supporting fortune 500 companies unless you guys, you know, like with my free work, unless you guys want to support me, like you can start paying me. Um, and I'll continue. He's like, feel free to fork this and use it, you know, whatever you, you know, however you want. But you know, I'm not gonna, you know, I mean, cause I mean with numbers like that, yeah, dude, this is like, I mean, it is a huge user base. And so I guess he's really just, you know, not making much off of supporting that. I, I've seen this, like uh, this picture where all these blocks are, are built up and there's this one tiny little block and it's, it's like the state of open source software today. And this one little block, it says like supported by uh, some guy in Nebraska on his free time for the last 10 years. And I guess this is one of those sorts of projects, but what he did is he uh, purposely, uh, uh, sabotage these. And so Faker like would generate like dummy data for like stuff, you know, I guess for testing or yeah, various things Sting. like that. And, uh, it instead, what did it do? I think it started like, uh, just printing out, it basically went into like a loop and just started saying testing, 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 like over and over. And it would just like crash whatever you're doing. And then the other one I think would start like, uh, randomly, um, screwing up your text or something like that. It's like a process called uh, Zalgof, Zalgofication. I don't know. I'm totally butchering that. Um, but as soon as like, so we had all this stuff on GitHub. GitHub caught wind of it, right? Like because it's, it's crashing all these projects. And so they froze his account and rolled back his project prior to 
him bricking it. And so it poses the question, right? This is his code. He put it up open source. Is he not allowed to straight up delete some of this? Is he not allowed to modify it in any way he wants? I mean, he wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like malware. He wasn't like trying to extort, you know, money out of people or anything. Well, I don't know. One could argue that maybe he was trying to, <laughs> you know, hold it ransom. <laughs> I wouldn't call it maybe coerce. Yeah. Right, right. But the idea is like, this is his intellectual property right, that he put up. And here is GitHub seizing control of it and uh, wresting it from him. They've since reinstated his account. I don't know about the state of the code, whether they allowed his uh, new recent additions he put in there to, uh, to stand. I'm assuming not. But uh, I think it just that um, to me, it puts a lot of interesting questions out there. Like, should they have the right to do that? Should he have the right to do whatever he wants with the software that he created and put out there? Um, but you got to think, too, you know, it's like, uh, you know, he's uh, intentionally handicapping all these people, right? Like all these good people that are working hard that derive their livelihood from his stuff. I know that's not his responsibility, nor, you know, does it really matter to him one way or the other you know or should it right like how does that stuff weigh in just to me i'm not a big fan of people like uh swooping in and um you know playing big brother on something i created uh but then again i'm also not one of the you know 20 million plus a week downloads that just had my software completely brick on me so i was just curious like what you guys thought about all of that i think i did is this maybe? If I was, I think Sorry, I would, go ahead, uh, If I was going to be dependent on something like this, I think I'd be building my own local repository and depending on that and only updating it as time, you know, said that it should be done. Um, this kind of runs in the same problems with IoT in my world. I think, I think we ought to have a flat law that says if you build an IoT device, you have to give away the servers that run the thing, so that if you want to run your own, you can. And if somebody else wants to run off and run the service for them, do it. I get tired of people telling me, you know, my phone is running my garage door. It's like, no, it isn't. You've ceded all control to your garage door to somebody's computer halfway across the world. And every once in a while, they allow you to give some input mm. to it. Um, folks that are building software on this type of, uh, on this type of um, underlying keystone are going to have to be in control of that keystone if they want to have their software always run in my mind. Hmm. I, mean, it's, I get a little hard on that sometimes. No, so no, no, it's, it's, that's, that's well said. Um, I even see that in like my product. So uh, Ansible has a lot of uh, open source stuff, right? There's community contributed stuff. You can go and, and grab that. And then, you know, somebody will be trying to do uh, a demo, you know, for a customer or whatever. And those public, you know, open source, you know, community supported services all of a sudden stop and their demo bricks or a customer, you know, like, I don't know, like a fortune 50 bank is just pulling that crap right off the internet and it bricks. And they're like calling us like, what's going on here? It's like, bro, you're just pulling stuff straight off the internet. You know, we have a product that allows you to do a local repository, like pull that stuff in, you know, like maintain it inside your environment, you know, inside your walls, you know, build up some fortifications there, test that stuff, make sure it's good and, and clean and make everybody pull from that known good thing. So yeah, I'm definitely um, in the same boat as you. Now, 
do I always practice what I preach? Absolutely not because I'm lazy, but I'm also not running enterprise product, right? Yeah. If I'm going to charge somebody for this, I'm going to make sure I'm in, I'm in charge. <laughs> if you're going to pay me money, you should be expecting me to be able to control it. And if you're not in that position, I think you kind of get what you're, you know, what you deserve. I think the the big thing here is that is it someone who's lost passion for a project or is it someone that feels that they're being hard done by for the contribution that they've made? So we've seen this many times over the years where people run community forums or and you even see it in things like you know, the local swimming group, netball club, scout group, whatever, where you've got key contributors to those groups and, and they feel hard done by and therefore they're like, Oh, stuffed a lot of you, I'm out of here, you can you can sort this out yourself. It seems to me like he's he's trying to make a statement that he's contributed so much and why doesn't he get something back in return? And I'm sure he's used his um, smarts for other things in his employment and certainly used part of his code in his employment as well. But is it the right way of going about it? Probably not. But we've all made you know. So do you think it's more like of him? Past wanting to get money out of this? I mean, do he, he's trying to drive more value or is he trying to sh point out to people that you are depending on the wrong things? Because I'm kind of arguing about that second piece. And... Well, he's turned around to, to AWS by the look of it and he said, you know, I'd like some sponsorship, please. But, um, you know, what does sponsorship look like when you're a, a multi-billion dollar company and you're a, you know, a one-man developer sitting in his basement and sitting there, you know, what what are you looking for? Are these guys driven? Is their motivator money? Is their motivator recognition? Um, I'm I'm tipping sometimes the motivation might be might be financial, but are we talking millions of dollars financial, or are we talking? <laughs> I'd like to be able to order pizza and beer on a Friday night type of, you know, compensation. Like there's there's different there's different motivations and extremes that we that we're going to here. So I think he's trying to make the the uh, the case that, you know, I'd like to be recognized for my work. And I think a lot of open source projects certainly don't get recognized um, when people go and either fork them, copy them, um, just outright plagiarize them. And I, it sounds to me <laughs> like that's, post, that's the statement he's trying to make right uh, now. Take this as an opportunity to send me a six-figure yearly contract or fork the project and have someone else work on it. <laughs> yep, there you go. So, so his motivator is, you know. <laughs> Six six figure project, and if and if he's and I guess if he gets that sort of contract from the likes of your your Amazons, your IBMs, your Cisco's, or or your your Fortune, you know, Fortune fifty, Fortune five hundred large tech companies who are reliant on the project, well, yeah, he'd probably well, I mean, uh, be those kind of numbers and beer like, on a Friday night. Uh, between the two, uh, two point eight million plus twenty million, so that's about twenty three million downloads a week, uh, right? Not just like things in production utilizing those it's just downloads per week uh, you know if he got <laughs> so even at even at yeah, one cent he's per, doing per all right right so it's like that doesn't sound like a whole lot to ask you know if you are like a giant corporation making you know billions off of this to just you know throw a guy a couple of bones here and there but then also it's like i bet these guys use so many different libraries you know i mean and this is just you know one small one of probably tens of thousands. You know, I mean, just the logistics of keeping track of all that stuff seems impossible, but I get it. Well, what do you think about, 
um, the ability when so many community projects are reliant on this to go in there and sabotage it, just quietly sneak it in there. What do you think about that? I mean, obviously that's really shitty, but a few. There's there's been a few thought experiments about this topic for a long time. There was one of somebody wrote this really long, elaborate article. Uh, I have to see if I can find a link for it, but they basically said that this doomsday scenario where somebody snuck like a piece of malware in a really popular open source JavaScript library, because something like Faker is not used really in production. Mm -hmm. It's for testing. So when, when you're in testing and you need to disconnect your front end from a API, you can just mock a bunch of dummy data like articles or posts that you can kind of render it on the screen and, and do testing and stuff like that. So in that case, people probably aren't making a ton of money off of that directly, but they're probably using it to test their software. But the the article was like, somebody gave an example on how trivial it would be to uh, implement a piece of code in a really popular JavaScript library that basically scraped your, your browser's um, like local storage or, or scraped your browser's cookies and sent it off somewhere. And just based on how many packages there are out there, and the way that these package managers work, uh, it probably would go undetected for quite a while. So, it, you know, you can't you can't code everything yourself from scratch. Yeah, yeah. It's just not possible. So you have to depend on libraries. But, you know, open source is has kind of historically been a thankless job. Uh, luckily, um, organizations like GitHub have uh, taken a serious investment in open source maintainers. Now you can you can click to um, to sponsor people on their github profile so you can say five dollars ten dollars fifteen dollars there's actually some people right now that are making a living on maintaining open source software through sponsorship on github it's i mean it's like if one guy makes a cool library that uh, ends up getting rolled into a framework or something so there's probably some some node or javascript frameworks that part of the testing offering and so you know people are getting value out of it and a lot of times those open source maintainers, depending on the people that are using it and the people who care or the people who get involved on GitHub, it's kind of a thankless job for a long time. So people will blow up the GitHub issues on things that they're either misusing in the library, they don't understand that they want immediate support, or uh, they want uh, uh, some complex features. So there's not a lot of people necessarily contributing to the project, but there's a lot of loud people yelling at the developer who's devoting mm -hmm. their free time to give this useful utility to people. So I think for some people, especially if they don't have a large community or a group mm -hmm. of maintainers or um, a lot of this really successful large projects on GitHub, they have commercial products as well that kind of drive their funding. And so when you don't have that, I I'm sure it does get frustrating over time when, you know, it, it doesn't matter how much time they spend on their free time, they can never get all those issues closed they can never contact enough people and when there's bugs on people who are trying to make money and they're using your tool to do testing for the tool they're trying to make money with well they tend to direct that anger at the developer and so i think for some people depending on how severe it is or maybe they just happen to get a couple of really bad actors that harassed them because the tool doesn't do what they expected it to do i i could see somebody having that experience but that's why we have Things like Git, hmm. so you can go back on commits, you can fork things. So if you if you do use things in production, you should probably fork the important things so that you have a copy of it yourself and pull it from your own repository. But you know, some people ha have to realize 
you need to have a little bit of sympathy mm. for these open source maintainers because it, it is time sucking. They could spend all of their free time just trying to make people happy, adding features for people. And then if you don't get paid for it, I could see them just wanting to abandon the project because especially if it blows up and goes viral or it hits like Hacker News or the top of Reddit and people just start blowing up and using it. Well, now they have this huge influx mm. they don't know how to handle. But now you have a sense of responsibility to maintain that. But for no so that, benefit. That you, article you were talking about, I think either you were telling me about it or maybe I read a little bit about it. Is it like the idea that there'll be like a Java package or like a, a software open source software package that's used in another package that then gets wrapped in a bigger package and then in a bigger package. And it's like, there's so much dilution, right? It's like so many, uh, so many layers deep in the chain that like you never see the initial malicious change in that, that first little thing, right? Or is it something like right. that? Yeah. Well, I think that happened in the Debian code from memory. Something, something like that was at, at one stage. Something wasn't being filtered in the in the Debian source code, and someone was able to write something that got caught, but they managed to roll mm -hmm. it back before it was committed. And that's where things get tricky too, because if you've got a large community around a tool that is actively contributing and doing code audits, that's one thing. But if it's you know someone who's disgruntled that doesn't have a lot of support, that's just them. Well. There's a lot of access you have in the browser from JavaScript that you could scrape local storage, scrape API keys. You could do all kinds of sketchy things in this library and you, just kind of, you could sneak it in through commits. And if people are updating that um, dependency in their project, well, they're going to get that new code at some point and it's not going to really get caught until you know they've, they've exfiltrated a bunch of data. It, it's easy for that to happen and it's really hard with how many packages is there are to um, do a good job at auditing that stuff, which is why you need more people contributing, reading the code. Mm. Uh, but as somebody who develops software, you can't always audit every single package that you pull in. Like that's why you know Log4j was such a huge explosion of an issue because that that wasn't even something malicious. That was just um, <laughs> you know security is hard, especially if you you have a way that you take data from a user or you, you'd have to parse something that was not provided by you, there's always going to be options for people to, um, you know, do remote code execution and cause all kinds of chaos. And that, and that stuff's not intentional. But having somebody who does that intentionally could do it in such a way that is hard to see when you're just pulling in this secondary package. This is where Moore's Law has kind of gotten us backed into a corner because we now have so many resources that are above and beyond, you know, what we actually need to run things that when you pull in all kinds of extra pieces, they start running and nobody ever notices because, you know, you don't notice that those resources are in use at the moment. And, you know, a lot of the programmers are running around nowadays too dependent on that type of thing. You know, how, how many people are building long-lived demons anymore? They, they don't care. They spin up a container. It runs for a while. If it makes a mistake, big deal. You kill it and you bring up another one. Hold up. <laughs> So, why do I need to write efficient code when I've got gigabytes of RAM at, at my disposal now <laughs> and fast processors which will just mask any problems? There are memory leaks. Why do I have to write memory efficient code? Because if it locks up, Kubernetes yeah. will kill it. I'll just get a new container. So. Problem sorts itself out. So it only runs five times instead of you know if it, if it runs five times and then gets killed, who cares? And you know, we used to have to have things that would run ten thousand or twenty thousand or hundred thousand times before they would ever restart the processes. Mm. 
So the other the other security thing which I threw in the uh, the list for today was around Lint Minix. <laughs> Lint Minix. Let's try that again. Mint Linux. It must be it must be this uh, this uh, alcoholic water that I'm drinking at uh, one one o'clock in the afternoon here in Australia. Um, yeah, someone compromised their download server and replaced their ISOs with infected ISOs, which had packages again installed in it, which did a phone home and thank you very much. Your operating system's been compromised without you even knowing because the look and feel and everything else is the same. It's just that something under the hood's changed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what 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 was their what was their response? A My blog bad. article that said, <laughs> Yeah, we're sorry. It happened. Just download a new version and run it again. It's like, you know, that's that's full on. We're gonna see these sorts of things. I think BSD was the other one. Um I I read um that someone again got got the shits with something in the community, went and went and committed some some code and that would have been quite disastrous and someone someone managed to catch it before before it got committed, but they didn't have um, full code regression on their on their repos. That's wild. You know, when you were talking about um, how do you get these guys paid, and you know, you can directly support a project or whatever. It made me think about um, the way LinkedIn Learning works. And well, I guess Linda before then, they actually, you know, they were doing it this way, and then you know, LinkedIn just bought them or whatever. Um, but the way they did it, or whether the way they do it is, they take however much money LinkedIn Learning makes every month, and then they carve out a chunk of that. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say how much or not. I can't remember what was in the ADA. So I'll just say a portion of it gets carved out. Um, And what they do is that portion that gets carved out uh, goes to authors. That's all it's there for. So if you've authored a piece of content, they just look at, um, you know, of, you know, say we get a hundred people watch, um, you know, LinkedIn learning stuff this month. Like there's a, there's a hundred views. Well, if I have 10 of those views, well then of that chunk that came out, I get 10%, right, of that chunk of money. And then, you know, obviously I don't get that full percentage. So I get like a percent of a percent. (laughs) But it's still, right, like it's like based on like viewership. So it's like if you have a more popular piece of content, guess what? You get a bigger piece of that pie. And so I wonder if you couldn't just, you know, instead of trying to like pick and choose all these little pieces of code, instead just have a big repository that people could donate into. And then, you know, based on your utilization, you could get some share i mean maybe there would have to be some kind of algorithm adjustment in there you know because obviously as soon as you put something like that in place people are going to start trying to uh game it or take advantage of it you know but uh yeah you know well that's what we've seen though in the content space that we've seen that with spotify we've seen it with netflix we've seen it with all of the streaming providers we used to have a problem with you know, the Napster and all those sorts of things. And now we have Spotify where you pay, I don't know, it's about $18, $18 here mm-hmm. in Australia and you get your whole family can have a Spotify account. So where's the attraction to pirate music when they make it freely available and at a reasonable price? So perhaps that, that needs to be the model that maybe you can, you know, publish your project under something like that through GitHub, as you say, and then you get a, a clip of the... I mean, heaven forbid, you have to take a portion of their proceeds and set it aside for that. I mean, if TikTok can make 12-year-olds millionaires, I don't know why we couldn't, you know, like in the code space, come up with some system to compensate these guys that are toiling in anonymity. Because you end up with old guys (laughs) like us who have no idea what TikTok is. 
there is kind of a big difference though because when you look at media consumption they have advertisers and they own they own the rights to that media whereas a lot of code is open source or mit licensed so as long as you you know provide the licensing you can manipulate do whatever you want with it it's kind of the nature of open source um so it's hard to like have a comparison between you know uh, content creators making media versus stuff that was kind of intended to be open source and shared with the community. But, you know, GitHub has a whole bunch of services now. Uh, they have something called GitHub Actions, which lets you do a lot of cool things like spin up uh, containers for like CI, CD. And so I think for free, you get like 2000 minutes per month where you can spin up containers, do whatever. So I have a couple Golang binaries that it'll spin up a Windows, Linux, and Mac OS container to build. And, um, you know, 2,000 minutes per month is pretty substantial, but um, they have higher paid tiers. Um, they've also done a lot of things like they made organizations free, but there is a lot of premium stuff in GitHub that they could definitely use to um, support the content creators. The sponsorship thing is really cool because people can sponsor you. And I know a few people who are using integrations with GitHub to do like um, private content or videos or tutorials or other perks for people who sponsor through GitHub and they have a separate site that authenticates with GitHub. And yeah, if you're I was going to say, you can I, I do that GitHub, on my or it's OnlyFans for developers. That's a, yeah, that's a good go. model. <laughs> <laughs> Where is the marketing uh, ploy? Yeah, they could, they could do, I mean, that works pretty well. It, the people um, in like the PHP space specifically who are making six figures off of GitHub sponsors for something that started open source, a lot of large enterprise companies are using uh, their libraries, and so they're just sponsoring on GitHub. You log in, you click a button, and it just goes through your billing in GitHub, and that's been really successful for people. That didn't exist a couple years ago, so I think that's that's being more embraced now because I think more people understand that burden of maintenance. And if you're a company that depends on a, on a substantial framework, maybe not just a little JavaScript library, there's a lot of incentive there to mm. pay those developers to keep oh. them developing when your you know fortune whatever company runs that for all of their software so i think that problem is getting yeah. fixed but i think there's some disgruntled people over the years who i would love to think been, that uh you know corporations sponsoring them uh have noble actions like that but in earnest they're doing that so that they have more influence over how the product gets developed right so the the features and functionality that they want i wonder who's going to get precedence the guy who's giving you you know 20 grand a year uh or just the guy who complains in the forums so you know it... do you care <laughs> if i mean if you're using this stuff and and the developers getting oh, paid I know, I know. it's a win-win I, mean, I, mean, I think that's part of the key of what we're yeah, trying yeah. to find it's a win-win well it's it's a lot as, like as uh, long as your garage door opens and closes isn't that right john sorry i missed that great as as long as your garage door opens and closes, it doesn't really well, matter to the consumer. Mine is still has a wire. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of cool because it is like the OnlyFans model, where it's like, all right, you got tier one that's like fifteen bucks a month, and then it's like you get access to maybe an extra repository or something, or some extra documentation that's public or early access, and then it's like if you pay a thousand dollars, you might get like more uh, time with the development team to talk about like where the tool needs hmm. improvement or something. Also, if it, there's some tiers where it's like, you'll have your company branded like hmm. on the repo, so everyone sees your company. So it's it's kind of cool because once it, they get enough momentum, 
if people want to advertise their agency or whatever and pay, like they can they can hire people to help maintain the project. And so you can kind of build a business now off of GitHub sponsors. But uh, they need something for the little guys who don't really have a social media presence that can get people driven to their products. So I think they do need to figure out something to compensate these people. Maybe we, I don't know how they would do that, though. Yeah, we get a little meta here and we just start building open source frameworks to compensate people for working on open source software. <laughs> we get a few we get a few layers like that. We get, you know, in the dreams within the dreams and then suddenly people actually can get some <laughs> money out of this for doing the things they love. Can you imagine the road these guys are on. You know, they start putting together something cuz it's scratching their itch. You know, they're having fun, they're putting this stuff together. Um, suddenly, you know, you start seeing people liking it and they're saying, "Hey, this is great." And you know, that's it's a great feeling that people are liking, you know, this creation of yours. And you get down further down the line and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, this is a job. I don't know that I mm. want to do this. It makes me wonder how many of these guys like start a project when they're in college, right? While they're learning, they're, you know, becoming computer science guys or whatever. And then by the time they graduate, they're like, well, I need to get a real job. I don't have time to maintain this anymore. And so, you know, this nice little project starts, you know, falling by the wayside. It's the difference between difference between a hobby and a job. I'm doing it because I enjoy it and I want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting someone I'll tell else's you what, every hobby it. I've had where I started accepting money, it uh, quickly wasn't a hobby anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it turned into other fans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you accepting sponsorship for your OnlyFans site? I hear John's company is looking for some sponsorship uh, marketing. No, it's like OnlyFans, but it's just uh, you get to go in there and open random people's garages. That's all. That would be Ooh. cool. Ooh. That could be interesting. You might get some sponsorship from, I don't know, B&D Doors or something like that. They might come along and and uh, throw some have, throw some money at you for some garage door sponsorship. Is there anything you've seen that says that the people that are controlling your garage doors are not going to do that? I, I have a five-year-old. He controls the door. He gets <laughs> up and he pushes the button. And I can't control him, so you know what? <laughs> anything after that, well. Yeah, I had somebody last night. This is neither here nor there uh we were talking about like yeah if your kid's not gonna do whatever you know you have to go in there and manhandle them or whatever and my kid is standing right next to me and he's two inches taller than me and he's got like 80 pounds i go you want to manhandle my kid go for it <laughs> Jeez. it's like yeah, it doesn't really that only works to a point not anymore that point yep. that time has passed Yep, I'm I'm going to be looking at my kids' noses yeah, very, nice. very soon, that's for sure. Hey, Nick, you were talking about actions. Didn't that get exploited not too long ago? Well, like people were like crypto mining using the, the GitHub. Well, they could I be, think they shut it down, but I think, they probably I think it was be. like... There, there are limitations. Like you, you can't like run a container infinitely. Like there's there's times where they time out and it'll just collapse the container. Um, yeah, totally could because it's, it's all containerized technology and you can... In, in the YAML file, you can say, I want uh, Windows with these things installed on it, and I want Linux with these things installed yeah. on it. So I'm sure it I got it abused, was... but they probably got I a hefty I would say that somebody had like written some exploit where it turned out like GitHub, like 20% or more, or like 50% of all the actions were just like people like exploiting it for mining or something, so they had to like lock it all down. Where there's a will, there's a That's way. That's not surprising. It's like, they're like, hey, guys, 2,000 minutes for free. 
really cool. You can run your whole CI CD pipeline, your deployment pipeline. They're like, can we mine on it? Let it run Doom. Like, uh, please don't. Can, can you can you you know launch DDoS attacks and have them as as nodes for your DDoS attacks and all that sort of stuff? Like that's you know we're seeing more and more of that popping up. We saw a customer's router this week who's running a. I don't don't know if I should mention the the make and model of it. But um, running a running a make and model which uh, was originally Linksys, which is now owned by Cisco, um, and uh, yeah, one of those lipstick on a pig versions, and yeah, didn't didn't update the firmware on it, and we saw all three devices getting hit with these reflection attacks. And as soon as he upgraded them, factory reset them, and and all the rest of it, all came good. But we we we're seeing more and more of those sorts of things, and I'm sure that exactly that Nick is being abused. By all these guys, where they go, hmm, free compute. I can sign up for a free account. What is your name? My name is Lester. Lester Tester. Great, Mister Lester. How many? How many uh, compute nodes would you like to sign up for? How free? many can I have? <laughs> how many will you give me for free? What is your credit card number? It's four five six four four five six four four five six four four five six four. Oh, look, the test number works on your on your public website. Great. Let's go. Fun, fun, fun. But how many attacks now are coming from, you know, where we used to see them coming from the not-so-favorable countries, and they now are just launching from AWS and from Azure and things like that because computers available, you can get free minutes and it's cheap. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, all they have to do is grab an AWS account, use it till it gets blacklisted, and then, you know, just grab something else. And their, their team is really good, though. Um they kind of have like the the best people in the security industry working with Amazon. Like they have a, a full blown service where the whole knock will like work with you. Uh, so one of them's I think it was like five thousand dollars a month starting, but you get like a designated person, security expert. Um, they have some really cool um, firewall capabilities built in where they've got like a bunch of preset lists and everything for you. You just slap them on there and you just pay per per process or whatever and it's actually pretty cost effective but they have some pretty brilliant people no doubt. at Amazon so luckily that's getting caught no doubt yeah well when you can ship stuff for 6.99 a month to my door for nothing I'm sure you have some pretty amazing people there <laughs> yeah that's true alright Greg I've kept a running list of interesting things that have come out of your mouth uh, one of them was all gone to custard I thought that was good I, I might I might use them mm, all gone to yeah, custard yeah yeah uh, you that's, said chocolate cheese way of saying it. that's a new one for me yeah. Okay. Chalk and cheese. Yeah. That's a new one okay. to me. And then the, the, we, we might need to start an Australian yeah, just, colloquialism just like conversions. podcast. Mm. Um, and then one, I may have misheard you, but I think you said nipple club. <laughs> yeah. Nipple That's what club. I thought I heard too. No, I'm, I'm no. pretty sure that came out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that was the only fans reference. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's where your brain was, but that's where mine was apparently. Because I heard you say nipple club, and I wrote it down. I was like, "What is that?" Okay. See, Greg, I have this view. I have this idea that most of the Aussies are actually making these things up <laughs> on the fly just to see how many people around the world will say, "What was that one?" So, so, so the the best one I ever had was I was working with a vendor in the U.S. and I, yeah, and I yeah, said, yeah. "Good on ya," as in "Good on you." It's um, you know, we we always say "Good on ya," and she was like, "What?" <laughs> Good onion, and, and she she was so convinced that it was good onion. I'm like, yep, that's, it's that's good what onion. It was. So we we had a we had her running on a on a support ticket on that one for 
at, at least a few hours before uh, we had to break. So before I went to Australia, you. Andrew was telling me, well, the only thing you got to worry about are drop bears. And so he went this whole rigmarole. Absolutely. He sent me some Fishes very realistic looking websites. I was like, how have I never heard of this? Man, this is bizarre. Of course it was a hoax. You bastards made all of it up and then made all this. <laughs> it's not a hoax. It's it's all true. They're, they're like cute and cuddly koalas. And then when you, when you, going camping and you put your tent underneath them at night these koalas they grow fangs and they drop down out of the trees and they maul you to death very convincing wow and yeah i'm saying you know if it's not drop bears it's going to get you it's the immigration department at the moment because oh, that's the number one you guys kicking djokovic out that's all we that's all we've got well so so the federal government's media streaming service because of course it's all open courtroom it crashed so they had to go and youtube live stream the whole case when i was looking at it earlier there was seventy six thousand <laughs> people watching lawyers talking hansard because on a sunday afternoon there's nothing better to do in australia yeah. so you think he's gonna he's gonna get to stay it sounds like he's getting booted right uh look the the whole case is a bit of a sham and um who who knows the I was listening this morning to the um the applicant, so uh Jokic's uh lawyers go through it and they were certainly making some very strong cases there, but I, I haven't listened since we got on the <laughs> uh, the podcast this afternoon. So for context it's 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 quarter past one on Sunday afternoon here in Australia. So we will we will see uh, this afternoon. I'm sure it'll be in the six o'clock mm, news tonight to uh, whether on. he is staying I, I heard that uh Part of the controversy is they started like doing an investigation and like he had to start admitting to stuff he had lied about. So he like had like a positive COVID test and went to like a school and met with like a bunch of children and stuff like it's like, bro, that's kind of messed up. He's in a different country, so it doesn't count though. Wow. But you know, whatever. Well, he was the first player to be kicked out of a Grand Slam tournament by missing two shots. <laughs> Rim shot. Good times. <laughs> I'm here a week to try the video. All right, man. Well, that's all I had. Oh, somebody put something else on the list. Uh, more IPv6 support in the AWS. I bet that was Nick Arellano, wasn't it? I just threw that in there because uh, I just saw on AWS's announcement that the uh, Elastic Kubernetes service now supports IPv6. And then in December, they just added IPv6 support to, I believe, Lambda inbound and outbound connections, which is cool. Uh, and they're they're stating that they are pushing harder for organizations who have IPv6 compliance. So hopefully, API Gateway will have IPv6 support soon. But that's that's pretty exciting for me at least. It came up on um, Oznog here in, in Australia a few weeks ago. There was an application developer who said that he's having some issues with some of the CGNAT stuff with the mobile vendors, um, and that the response was do v6 native and you won't have a problem and apparently one of the requirements on the submission to apple app store is to actually have v6 native now interesting when you submit an app I to the app store so yeah really interesting i i certainly know that the our big carrier here telstra um has made a big push um for native v6 to, to handset which has been around for probably two years in the main metro markets and um, certainly the other two carriers, Optus and TPG Telecom, which owns Vodafone Australia, um, have been pushing down that path as well to, you know, stop doing CGNAT and 
and focus more on V6 to the handset. Very cool. I just I just remembered that I <clears throat> just turned up a connection to another carrier, and I think they can do V6. I'm going to try it out. I might blast out some of my V6 stuff just to test. But it's on somebody else's network, so I can't really like use it, use it, but maybe, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't do that. I just kind of want to see if it's going to work. I just looked up real quick. Apple has had IPv6 port built into all the apps since about 2016. It's been a minute. There you go. That's, uh, yeah. we've had five years to catch on, six years to catch on now. I'm sure, um, get to it. what is it? The U.S. government has some mandate for IPv6, so I'm sure that helps spur on AWS with all this stuff. They want to maintain those contracts. We get those dollars. Mm. <laughs> all right, man. Well, that's all I got on the list. Uh, do you guys have anything else that's uh, new or interesting or burning a hole in your pocket you just need to talk about? Nick's only fan site. What's the uh, address, Nick? We, uh, you have to go join the Brothers Wisp uh, Slack group, and I will post <laughs> that in the announcements. Yeah, he Ooh, just does lewds in there. He doesn't do nudes. He does lewds in the Slack, and then you have to go to the OnlyFans to get the actual nudes. It's it's all these. Got to get you got to get the higher pictures. Tier. It's the pictures of these these tower shots, and it's like these, and he just posted <laughs> in a new massive erection. It's just this big tower. It's like, whoa. Giving away the content. You got to join the, the <laughs> Slack group. You'll get the link to that. It's a treasure a hunt. Treasure hunt. Oh, it's a new oh team. All right. This, on this all right. Well, let's do the closing. Uh, we'll do it in reverse order. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Lipschitz, if you want to folks to interact with you out on the internet, not saying you want them to because uh, there's weirdos out there. Uh, if you did, though, how would you have them do that? Yeah. You can find me in Nick Arellano's OnlyFans group, number one subscriber. You can also find me in the uh, Brothers Wisp Slack channel uh, and uh, jump in there and have a chat. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I believe next is Nick Arellano. How do people uh, interact with you on the internet? Here's if you're going to reverse it, right? Uh, You can email me at nick.a at hey.com or become a patron, ideally, for extra access. (laughs) I like the way you got a little deep when like you said extra access. Ah, the indication is strong there. I get it. I get it. All right. Uh, <laughs> he got really close to the mic for that one. Uh, John Osman, if uh, you want to interact with folks out on the internet, how would you have them do it? Um, as always, Brothers Wisp Slack is easy. Be a patron. Help out there. Um, John at Osman.net always works. And if you're really bored, you can go to miscreantsinaction.com and that's where I've thrown odd things at different times and I wouldn't really call it a blog that much, but it does exist. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there and poke around miscreants in action. I like that. That's a good URL, man. Uh, I guess if you want to find me, I'm Greg at gregsoul.com. That's my email. You can find me at gregsoul.com where I regularly blog. I just did one on creating execution environments for Ansible. Uh, it ended up being kind of a long article because I had to paste and all kinds of interesting things together. There, you know, it, there's information out there on how to do it. It's just not all in one place and for a dummy like me. So it's all in dummy format uh, for you there. Uh, let's see. I guess if you have any questions or comments, please throw them our way, either via email. Um, you can do contact us at thebrotherswisp.com or you can just email me directly, whatever floats your boat. You can also become a patron, patreon.com forward slash brotherswisp. And I am pretty quick on uh, ads and DMs and all that good stuff. But uh, honestly, you're going to be talking to the rest of these guys. These smart guys are in there. 
answering all these fun questions. So uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, John, Greg, Nick, and uh, see you guys next time. Let me hit stop. Say that for my boy.